You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. All right, Sonny, we got another exciting interview today from one of my grown-up rock bands, which is Paul Dean from Loverboy. I go way back to that first record with Loverboy that came out in 1980, and I was just starting to get into hard rock, and they had a pretty good guitar edge on that uh, record, so I was all in from that first uh, record on. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm a Loverboy fan. I, you know, I can't say I'm a super fan, and I'm not exactly a casual fan, so I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I think this is one of those bands that uh, we probably don't agree on what we feel our favorite songs are, because you definitely like the harder side of Loverboy. Yeah. I like the softer side of Loverboy. Yeah, you know what's interesting, though? In doing the research for this interview, of course, I went back and listened to a bunch of Loverboy and some of Paul Dean's solo stuff. And you know what I found with a lot of the Loverboy stuff is, yeah, I absolutely, I, you know, I'm not a ballad guy. I don't need to say that again, even though I just did. I like the heavier stuff, the Steal the Thunder and uh, Strike Zone, stuff like that. But also they had like kind of a third side to them. So they had that side that was the heavy guitar edge stuff. And they had the ballad stuff, which uh, you kind of like. But also they had some stuff that was, you know, almost borderline sort of new wave a little bit. It reminded me in listening back to some of these songs, it reminded me a little bit of like the Cars, some of the earlier Cars stuff. And, you know, I have to look and tell you what songs in particular, but I remember listening like each album literally kind of had that feel to it when I look at some of that stuff. Yeah, and I think that's where we probably agree because, like you, I know you really like Strike Zone, right? And I think that's okay. I love "It Could Be the Night." I know you hate that ballad, but we probably both like "Hot Girls in Love," and that's where the center is. Yeah, of course we do. But there was stuff like you know, "Little Girl" off the first record. There was just some stuff to me that reminded me a little bit of the earlier Cars stuff. You know, yeah. some of that feel to it, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing when you had a harder guitar edged band plus the ballad band. You know, it was just kind of a weird mixture, but I kind of liked some of those songs. And, you know, the Cars were early influence for me. You know, that that first Cars record, I've talked about it many times. That was one of the first records I ever bought. Even the people that are helping them, right? So like Bruce Fairbairn, He's more melodic, but then Bob Rock is more rock, right? So even the guys that are working on their albums are kind of bringing in that feel. So I think that uh, car type stuff kept them on the radio and kept them on the charts. And that's probably why they own those five years. 
Yeah, and you know, Paul talked about it a little bit in this uh, interview where, you know, basically, you know, for him, he was never going to be a guitar star. He never really had that desire. For him, it was all about making Mike Reno look good uh, and sound good, and he was all about writing the songs that he thought fit best. You know, he flat out says that in this interview is his job was to write the songs. Loverboy's weird because... You could argue that Loverboy's basically a nameless and faceless band. Like if Mike Reno doesn't do Almost Paradise with Ann Wilson in like 85 or whenever that came out, people most likely would not remember his name, but they would know the headband yeah. and the leather pants, right? And the great songs. That image is an iconic image from the 80s. Yeah, but if you would have had to name, like I, I wouldn't have been able to name Paul Dean if I didn't really kind of look into it. Nobody was saying Paul Dean on the radio. Yeah. And reality is nobody was saying Mike Reno on the radio until he did that song with Ann Wilson. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, and I saw Loverboy uh, headline either on the Get Lucky Tour, maybe the Keep It Up Tour. I don't remember exactly which one. I wish I could remember what opening act they had uh, because usually in those days, I mean, I was all in to see both bands. Very few times did I go where the headlining band didn't have a good opener back in those days. Can't remember who it was, but I'm sure I bet I liked it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I got to look at my list again, but I don't think I've ever seen Loverboy. Because by the time that I'm looking at concerts, I'm in the mid to late 80s, and these guys are fizzling out. Yeah, I saw them at the height for sure because they were headlining in an arena where I saw them. I saw them in the same place that I saw my first concert with Van Halen. But, you know, not only am I a ballad guy, I've always said that, but this could be the night was my senior ball song. So, (laughs) I mean, like I have a connection to the song. Right on. Yeah. When they released big ones – in 89 with all those hits it also had a song that album had a song called for you which wasn't released on anything that's one of my favorite lover boy songs yeah and i love every song off that greatest hits album so that's kind of what got me into lover boy and then i went backwards yeah Cool. All right. Well, before we get too far into this subject, hey, listen, we got to talk about the Rock and Pod 2 Expo because we're in a battle right now. We got all these other amazing podcasts getting all these cool donations and their perks are getting picked up and the new young guys on the block, the grown up rock podcast, we're just kind of hanging out trying to trying to drum up whether it's two bucks or three bucks or four bucks or five bucks to put in the donation pile. Um, And we did have a donation this week, which was completely amazing by Jason Kearney, who donated and picked up the This Ain't No Disco perk where Jason's going to come on a future episode and he's going to do an episode of This Ain't No Disco and Jason gets to pick the year and the songs. So that's going to be killer. We're looking forward to recording with Jason here in the next couple of weeks or so uh, and putting that episode out. Uh, But we need the help from all the other listeners and we don't care whether it's five bucks, 10 bucks, 15 bucks. We would love for you to donate in the name of Growing Up Rock and then send us a message through Facebook or tweet or whatever and let us know that you donated in our name and we'll make sure that we let all the fine listeners know all about it. This rock and pot thing, first of all, is going to be really cool. So if you can make it out, that would be wonderful. 
But, you know, as we've said before, if you've ever want to try something like this and you don't maybe have the means to do it or you don't know how to set it up or you don't know how to get started, literally all you have to do is be able to get on Skype and that's it. And we can record an episode like it's that easy. So uh, it'll at least give you an idea of whether you want to do something like this or not. And, you know, at times people do it and they kind of fall in love with it like I did and start doing a bunch of them. So check it out. Yeah. And Skype's free. If you don't know anything about Skype, it's free to get an account. We'll call you right up and off and recording we will go. But Rock and Pod Expo 2, we were there for Rock and Pod 1. Tons of record vendors, tons of cool podcasts tons of cool rock stars and it's just a great time so just like Sonny said if you're going to be in nashville on august 25th come by the nashville palace be there but if you can't be there if you can't make it if you live in des moines iowa or somewhere and you just can't make it you can still contribute and that would greatly help us out we would greatly appreciate it We'll make sure that we get all the cool content from the expo. So we'll make it feel just like you were there. So that's definitely something to think about. We would appreciate it. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. All right. So Grown Ups of the Week, these are the folks that shared us on Twitter and uh, shared us on Facebook. And we had quite a few. We did three back-to-back episodes. So these folks shared one of those three episodes. And in some cases, they shared all three episodes. So the Grown Up of the Weeks are Alan Tate. James Jabba, DNR Studio CEO, FolkPopRock.com, Metal Empire Mag, Ogata, our buddies at Potter Than Hell, Talking Metal Podcast, because uh, Striegel was on, which is great, Decibel Geek, our friends there, Striegel himself, Mark Striegel shared us, Jay Sabluski, Jody Havnot, Nighthawk, Eladio, Focus on Metal Podcast, Save Rock and Metal Jason Alexander, Tony Masalam from Restrained. By the way, um, they're opening for Warrant soon, which is going to be kind of fun. Uh, in Sacramento, California, by the way. Our buddy Chris Sinzak, Rick Friel, Christian De Messones, Bill Algie, Lisa Dalton, Steve Wright from Potter Than Hell, Diego Dixon, Janet X, Shuana Lee, Florence Kai, Tom Dust, Jimmy Starr, Lady Lake Music, Daryl Alber, Bella Lowe's 1966, Guza, our buddies at Classic Rock Drops Podcast, our buddies at CGCM Podcast, David Cathy, Bill Elam, and our buddy Joe Polo, who we just did an episode with called Gone Solo. So uh, thank you very much for retweeting and sharing us. Awesome. We appreciate everybody's help. But you know what, Sonny? You know what I like almost more than all these fine people that share our podcast, which I love each and every one of them that are doing the sharing. That's awesome. We appreciate it. But I love it when people go to our Facebook page or the iTunes store and leave us a five-star review. 
You know what I'm saying? And it's been dry. It's been super, super dry for months. I guess people just, you know, they come and they listen and they, you know, maybe say, eh, or they love it and they just don't, don't share their feelings with us. And it, and it hurts my feelings when they don't share their feelings. You know what I'm saying? I understand. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it's the dry spell is over. So I'll start with the Facebook uh, reviews. So we got a couple of Facebook reviews. Our friend Troy Dunn says, great show. Thanks for bringing new and vintage rock music to my ears and making my work day go by quicker. Short and sweet. And I'll tell you what, this is something that makes me super happy because podcasts help my day go by quick and easy as well. And I love hearing new music. And I love that we're turning people on to new and vintage rock music. It's awesome. So, Troy, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Bill Elam, great show. It's all about how we became the fans we are today. Absolutely. That's what it's about, rock and roll music and the nostalgia behind it. And then our friend Stephen Stacy basically just said five stars and that's it. <laughs> he didn't say much else. Not a talkative guy, Stephen Stacy. Uh, <laughs> but that's it. Over to iTunes. Our buddy Jay Zablewski. Jay's been around for a little while. He's been sharing our episodes. He just says another great one uh, and says the Decibel Geeks will love these guys. And uh, he's right. We love the Decibel Geeks. And so uh, fans of the Decibel Geeks will most likely appreciate our show. Sonny, we got one more. I'm going to read it out. And this is by Winner Winner Chicken Dinner. I'm just kidding. I made that up. This is by Winner 567. Winner 567 says, Growing Up Rock Rocks. Subscribe to this show now. Great sound quality, knowledgeable host, a fun listen for fans of true rock. Keep up the great work, Sonny and Steven. That's awesome. I like that, dude. Or, or chick, I, I really don't know. Winner, winner, chicken dinner could be anybody, a girl or a guy, but I love them. So, Sonny, I'm super happy right now. You know what I'm saying? I understand, but I think uh, <laughs> he didn't give us five stars, did he? Who? The person you just read? Uh, yeah, he did. No. The, oh, no, he did. The one, the one after it. So that's right. I'm glad you bought that up. So we really appreciate when people go and they leave us a five-star review in our, on our Facebook page or our iTunes page. It's awesome. And then they have something quick to say. We sometimes scratch our head when we have uh, somebody that leaves us one star, not because they left us one star. That's actually, if you don't like it, you don't like it. And you want to leave us one star, you got to do what you got to do. We won't, we won't censor that, but parkour 56. So parkour 56, parkour 56 says great, unique, listen, great show with a unique concept. Keep up the excellent work. Now you would think that that sounds like at least a four, maybe a five star review. I think Parkour 56 messed up and left us a one-star review. <laughs> so, so what's up with that? So what that ends up doing is kind of messing up the overall uh, rating of the podcast. And it is important to us. 
we don't hang our hat on it, but it makes us happy if we're making you happy is the bottom line. But yeah, Parkour 56 um, had some good stuff to say, but just unfortunately only checked that one star and that made us look bad to all our friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's the message that counts. It is the message that counts. So anyway, that's it, man. That was a bunch of stuff, but, uh, you know what? We got it out of the way. We caught up on everybody else. Uh, and now we've got, uh, got this, uh, really cool Paul Dean interview from Loverboy coming up. Um, but before we get into that, uh, you did a poll on Twitter, right? Yeah. So a couple of days ago, cause I knew we were going to do this episode, put up a poll on Twitter and, you know, I didn't really want to put Working for the Weekend as part of the choices because I figured it would win because everybody knows that song. So what I asked was, besides Working for the Weekend, what Loverboy song out of these four do you like best? And the choices I gave was When It's Over, because that's one of my favorites. This Could Be the Night, because that's one of my favorites. I put Hot Girls in Love, which is a little more rocker. And I put Turn Me Loose, which is obviously a little more rocker. And out of those four, we got 32 votes, and 20 out of those 32 votes were Turn Me Loose. So obviously people like the song Turn Me Loose, so we should probably play it right now.
see, now I like that song. It's probably the first song I ever heard by Love of Boring. It's the one that drew me in to getting that first record. But I'll be honest, me, like obviously a lot of the voters out there, we like the rocking stuff. So I would have put stuff like Steal the Thunder or Strike Zone. I love those tunes, man. That's that's good heavy guitar riffing stuff from Paul Dean. That's the stuff that I prefer. But you know, Sonny had to have his ballads on there, Crybaby. <laughs> well, people still picked the hardest rocking song out of there, so you still won. Exactly. So get my point. all right so let's get into this paul dean interview because i don't want to waste any more time it's a pretty long interview and uh it's an interesting one and paul and i uh talk a lot about his uh youth and growing up uh there in canada and uh so there's some pretty cool stuff in this interview so definitely definitely enjoy the paul dean interview for you right now Hey everybody, this is Paul Dean from Loverboy, and you're with the Grown Up Rock Podcast with Stephen Michael. Paul Dean, welcome to the Grown Up Rock Podcast. Thanks for sharing a little bit of your time with us today. Welcome to my cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to cover real quickly kind of the overview of your career. So I've got nine Juno Awards, which is the equivalent to the uh, U.S. Grammy. I guess that's the Canadian Grammy. Guitarist and founding member of Loverboy. Seven albums, roughly, not including greatest hits and things like that, with Loverboy. The last record was Unfinished Business in 2014. The band, at this point, has sold over 10 million albums in the U.S. and 11 million in Canada. And that's not to mention the countless millions that you've sold all over the world. So, quite a successful career. Solo artist, you've done what now? Three solo albums or two solo albums? This latest one is my third. Some people call the the Blackstone album a solo album because it was done outside the band, but uh, it's, I guess you could call it a solo album. So, but this is with me singing. This is my third solo outing. Yes, right. And so uh, I remember Hardcore, which was released. Boy, back in 89, but I think you recently re-released that, right? That's correct. We, uh, I don't know where they found it. I remember seeing it, but I don't know if it was ever released, but it, it's released now on YouTube, the video for Draw the Line. So there's Sword and Stone and, and Draw the Line is on, on YouTube, and the album is now, it's available for streaming on Spotify and, and Apple Music and that. Because I was, I was thinking of going, you know, I'm going to just see if somebody, if maybe the record company at the time, was, which was uh, Columbia and it's now Sony, just want to see if they actually did put that out and they had not put it out. So we went to them and asked them if they would be up for that. And they went, absolutely. I was sorry that, you know, we missed that. And they put it up and they also dug back in their video archives and found the two videos. So very cool of them to do that for us. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit more about hardcore a little bit later on. But before we kind of get into what's happening most currently, I'm wondering if you will, I'd like to sort of take a trip back and visit a teenage Paul Dean kind of growing up in Calgary, 
you started out around 12 years old with a wash tub bass. That's true. <laughs> you moved on to a, a wind-up ukulele around 13. Yes, so far so good. The only missing detail is it wasn't actually in Calgary. It was in, uh, it was in a very small resort area in British Columbia, Canada. Okay. Uh, but it was about three hours from Calgary. We came from Calgary. We moved from Calgary. Our family was living there for a couple of years. My dad was, he was a traveling salesman and he just got tired of the road, which I can sort of understand being I'm a road guy myself, but at least I have the payoff at the end of the traveling. I get to play my guitar for people. So that's great. But he got tired of it and he wanted to be with his family. They found this great resort and they bought this resort. And uh, that's where I grew up, kind of in the middle of nowhere. I used to take the school bus six miles to school and started off in grade three, went through grade 12, and then moved to Vancouver and started seriously playing there. Vancouver's a beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah, I love it here. And so you ended up moving on little by little. You ended up with an acoustic guitar, which I read you. You ended up smashing playing badminton which if people don't know what badminton is, I used to play badminton all the time down in Florida with my family. We used to have a badminton net up in the backyard. So kind of like tennis, but with much skinnier, longer rackets and uh, this uh, what we call birds, right? Uh, the plastic birds yeah. with the little rubber tips on the noses. Yeah, and I, I had moved up to an electric guitar by then that I got uh, through the Sears catalog with a little amp and a little silver tone amp and a silver tone guitar. And uh, so I didn't really need the acoustic, and I don't know what possessed me to smash it playing badminton, but who knows what you're thinking about when you're 14. It's, you know, yeah. seemed like a good idea at the time, I guess. Right. And you said your dad was a traveling salesman. Were either one of your parents musicians at all? You know, the threat is, apparently, my grandfather on my mom's side was, we're talking before radio, or before records, I mean, way back, the turn of the 20th century. It, and he was apparently, he was the life of the party. He, would, he had a really great voice. And he used to sit around the piano and he used to sing songs of the day. And I guess they would have sheet music. Somehow they would get it, or maybe he, I don't know where they would hear it in those days. But so that's as far back as as I have gone. I guess that's where I got. My mom was, she was a, a pretty good singer and a decent piano player too. Whereas my dad, was had zero musical ability it was just so strange he just didn't have it he just didn't have that rhythm or the, or the melodic sense but uh, my mom definitely did so i think i got it from you know I, they say it skips generations but i don't know i think i got it from my gramps right but there was musical genes there in the family whether it was your grandfather or your mother there was some sort of musical inclination there yeah what initially drew you to the guitar I went to a, a small dance in the community. I think it was probably at the school gym. And uh, my sister was in this band. She playing. She was a decent piano player. I guess probably still is. I don't know. I, I don't know if she ever plays. But she was good enough to be in a band. And I went to see them. And there was a guitar player there playing electric guitar. And I was blown away by that. I was totally captivated. I don't know if I would if I had been playing the ukulele at that time already. But mm -hmm. I couldn't believe how cool that was. So. That's when I ordered the guitar, and uh, from my earnings, you know, from right. working at the resort, I ordered a guitar and uh, started playing it, yeah. started learning how to work the darn thing. Yeah, and so by this time, at you know, at 13, 14, you're into playing guitar, and you're uh, moving your way through things. Were you pretty much self-taught? Were there any formal lessons? I had one lesson. 
a guy, I heard about a guitar player in town and he came over and he taught me how to tune kind of, we got, got started on the, on the fundamentals of the mechanics of a guitar. And he showed me a pretty cool way to tune the guitar. And that was the extent of my lessons because sadly, shortly after that, he uh, met his demise on the back of a Harley. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah. So that was kind of, that was that. I, I didn't know the guy that well. I, I knew him well enough that he did come by one day and he took me for a ride on the back of his hog. And I couldn't believe that was another, another uh, inspirational moment for me too. Like that was one of the highlights. Of, and I finally got my dream Harley myself in 83 uh, with the help of the sales from our first album. So wow. that was the first thing I bought when I got my first royalty check. I think I got a $10,000 royalty check or something. I went, this is amazing. And I didn't buy a house. I didn't do any of that. I went and bought a bike. All right. Well, priorities, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what kind of music are you listening to at this point in time? Are you have you ventured out into serious rock and roll at this point, or are you still? I mean, what are you listening to when you're just uh, learning to play guitar and you're at the fourteen, fifteen year old kind of age? Where we were situated. It's called the Columbia River Valley, the headwaters of the Columbia River, which flows down and comes out of Portland. We were up in the mountains there, and so we were very isolated. I, we could get one radio station from Spokane at the time, right? Spokane, Washington, and it was a country station. So that's what I cut my teeth on, okay. listening to Johnny Cash and and stuff like that. And then I was lucky enough to get a trip into Calgary, which, as I was saying, it's about three hours from where I lived. We would go in, my family and I, we would go in there maybe once or twice a year and we would stock up on, you know, whatever my dad needed a new truck or a new pickup truck or whatever. And uh, I would head straight for the music stores. That's where I discovered guitar instrumentals because that was the only source back then. There was no radio playing that kind of stuff and there was certainly no TV, you know. Mm-hmm. Although we did have TV, we were able to, I could watch the, uh, every Saturday afternoon they had this thing out of Calgary and it was live bands playing for an hour. And that was like amazing for me to, to watch that. That was a real gift, but they weren't really playing the stuff that I was interested in. I was interested. I was in surf music big time. Yeah. So the ventures ventures, exactly right. Ventures and fireballs and shadows were, and, and Johnny, the hurricanes, another band out of I believe the Tacoma area. Yeah. So all instrumental stuff, all with great guitar players and really simple blues based stuff. Although the ventures, they kind of, they had a few more, and the shadows, they had more advanced uh, progressions. But So that's how I learned. I put the, the records on the, the EPs at the time, I guess, or, and I, I put them on, and I would just play along with them. And I would learn all the parts, all the bass part and the drum part. And invariably, it, it, it was two guitars, bass, and drums. So that was kind of the, the deal back then. And except with Johnny and the Hurricanes, they had an organ, a really cool, kind of corny-sounding, cool box organ that they played the melodies on but the guitar player would be cooking in the background and decent solos and i didn't learn the sax part and the organ part but i learned all the other parts just you know how a song is made up right what it what it takes you know so shortly after that like i was playing uh i had a, a gig on saturday night we lived on a lake and there would we would have a bonfire for all the people that would be staying at our resort we had 16 cabins and places for 100 tents and trailers to set up so we had, there's a lot of people there in the summertime. It was, it was crawling with people. It was a real blast, real party atmosphere. So and every Saturday night, I would stretch a 150-foot extension cord across the lawn from our front porch down to the lake side. 
and I would plug in my amp, my silver tone amp and my silver tone guitar. And we would sing folk songs of the day. And, uh, I guess word got out that there was this kid who could sort of play this young 15 year old, 16 year old kid who could play. And one day I was manning the store in our resort. We had, and, uh, that was my job every Sunday afternoon when my folks would be cleaning the cabinets, getting ready for the next customers, I would be mining the store. And one day a guy came in and said, I hear you're a pretty decent guitar player. We're looking for, we're actually looking for a bass player. Would you be interested in uh, coming and joining our band? I said, absolutely. So, you know, I asked my dad and mom and they said, yeah, that'd be okay. So at 16, I was, that was my first gig. I was the uh, bass player on a homemade bass that the guitar player had built. He had, he built a bass amplifier. He took apart a jukebox. That was pretty inventive. Took apart a jukebox <laughs> and uh, I don't know how he got the preamp going, but all that tech stuff, but that's what I plugged into. We built a little cabinet with a speaker in it, probably took it out of the jukebox too and made it portable. And that was my amp. And I played sax as well in the band. And he let me play guitar in two songs and we would do uh, do like a twist, you know, that was the, uh, take me back or what, but that was the uh, style of dancing of the day, but you know, chubby checkers. Right, right. Do the twist. So he, that was my gig. I would play that kind of a rock and roll blues thing on the guitar. We'd do two songs on that and then I'd be, Back to base. Was that Cannonball or was that before Cannonball? That was my first gig. I, that was way before Cannonball. Okay. Yeah, I think Cannonball was my, I'm going to guess probably around my 11th or 12th band. Oh, okay. I was, in, I was in a lot of bands. Loverboy is my 14th band. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, I assumed at some point in time, as is with most kids, being in such a secluded area, I didn't know whether it was true for you or not. Most kids that start out playing guitar, playing any instrument for that matter of fact, end up in garage bands with their buddies from school, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And so I didn't know whether that's kind of what this was. And this was pre cannonball, pre obviously pre uh, lover boy and pre uh, street heart. Yeah. That was back in uh, what year was it? Back in the mid sixties when I started playing professionally. So I've been doing this a long time. Yeah. And did you have the opportunity back in like the 60s, late 60s, early 70s? Did you have the opportunity to kind of see any of those, what I would consider, you know, historic kind of rock bands like Zeppelin or the Beatles or Hendrix, any of those folks? Did you ever have the opportunity to see any of those folks live? I saw Hendrix live. I met him actually. Our singer in the band that I was in at the time was from that area, the Seattle-Tacoma area, and he was boasting that he knew Jimmy and that he would, he would get, it, get us into the dressing room and blah, blah, blah. So we waited outside the show, like his biggest fans, outside the building because we figured on the, this is probably where he's going to come in. This is the side door he's probably going to come in. Sure. And so we waited there for about an hour, and sure enough, we nailed it. And there, there he was. He came in and, hey, man, how you doing, man? He was he was. <laughs> So, you know, I, I probably shook Jimmy Hendrix's hand, and then we we stayed around, waited around for him to come and, and play. And unfortunately, we all had a gig that night at a, at a club, and, uh, we you know, we're sitting there. Vanilla Fudge had just finished, and we're blown away by that. I mean, that was unbelievable. So we're sitting there waiting, and we're looking at our watch, and we're, we know we're supposed to be on stage at 9 o'clock at this club, and we're looking at the watch, and it's like, okay, Fudge ends at 8.30. And so Hendrix is probably going to be on in 10 minutes, right? Uh-huh. We're all excited, and you know that goes by, and nine o'clock goes by, and nine twenty goes by, and we're going, okay, the stage has been set. What's the deal here? Come on, Jimmy. So anyway, he finally hits the stage at nine thirty, like a half an hour after we're supposed to be at our show, 
And so we stayed for five tunes, and I was just like blown away. It was so great. And then uh, we went and we did our gig, and a couple of days later, I was up in front of the union getting fined for being late for the gig. We got to the gig, and the band leader there, the guitar player, I was the bass player in that band as well, and the guitar player was... You can imagine he was pretty livid, and the club owner was giving us the stink eye, you know. So they reported us to the union. We went down and we pleaded guilty, and I paid my twenty-five dollar fine. And uh, okay, see you later. Thanks, bye. <laughs> that's where Canada is different than the U.S. That's uh, that's kind of interesting, but uh, yeah. So uh, your impression was pretty blown away by seeing Hendrix. Then it sounds like I got to see I got to see the Fireballs too, which were a huge influence to me many years prior to that. When I was, we we drove, my buddy and I, we drove in from where I was living in the in the boonies into Calgary and it's actually a little town out on the outskirts. And I, well, I was blown away by that too, because they were the, really the, the, truly the first professional band I'd ever seen. Right. And uh, they were Jimmy Gilmore and Sugar Shack and all these really great songs and great sound and great feel. Uh, that was a very memorable night for me too. It was, I mean, I don't. I doubt very much that the fireballs are still around, but they were a huge influence on me. I love the, I love the sound. I love the feel. George Tonsko on guitar was amazing, um, a groove meister. You know, he taught me a lot about feel, and uh, that's what it's all about. That's garb music. It's all about. It's got to have that groove to it, or forget it. Yeah. Right. And when I was doing research, you know, you ended up and you were playing in Street Heart with Matt Fernet who went on to be the drummer in Loverboy. And that record, Street Heart, was actually a really successful debut album in Canada. I think it went gold and beyond back in 78. So it was a really huge Canadian debut record. What was your impression of that band and that album at the time? Well, it was a great band. That's all I can say. It was a killer band. We we rehearsed for, I don't know, maybe four months or something and writing all these tunes and we wrote a lot most of the tunes in that time period actually for that album and uh and later on in the road we were, we were traveling through uh, through ontario with the band and kept writing and we finally got a chance to record after we've been together for guessing eight nine months probably of touring and and since we put the band together and then we rehearsed it and then started touring and then and then we recorded probably nine months later or maybe a year but yeah it was uh very rocking band of really great communication between the musicians and very dynamic. We just knew each other really. I don't know. It was just one of those things that looked really compatible. All the guys in the band and, and the singer, Kenny Shields too, is recently deceased last summer. Yeah. It was a strong record for 78. And I, I can see, you know, sort of flashes here and there of, of what maybe Loverboy would become at one point in time later on down the road. But Street Heart, I mean, was a pretty hard rocking record, uh, some really good creative pop songs uh, mixed in. And after that first record and such a big success, you ended up parting ways with the band. And what happened with all of that? Well, not, not to get too personal about it. it I guess I could put it like this. The manager of the band, he came to me kind of begrudgingly. He, they really wanted Matt in the band. And maybe they went to Matt and Matt says, I'm not going anywhere without Paul. I don't know what happened. I, I could fantasize that, I guess. But he came to me and his plan was they didn't want a guitar player. They wanted to have two keyboard players. And uh, so they already had a keyboard player and the Spider was in the band and Kenny was, was singing. Schiller keyboard player, Daryl Gutiles, is still part of the ongoing Street Heart. 
And they never really wanted a guitar player. They wanted to have something different. So it didn't really start off that great between me and the manager. So I, I was complaining a little bit to him about the, some of the things on the road that were happening and that, that I didn't think were cool and uh, just looking for some guidance there. What what should we do about it? And, and uh, I guess he and Kenny looked at me and said, this guy's a real troublemaker. He's got to go. So Wow. that's kind of put, putting a simple right. twist. I, I don't want to, as I say, I don't want to get into too sure. many personal details on it, but uh, that's kind of what happened. They came to Calgary. I was living in Calgary at the time yeah. and Kenny and the manager came to Calgary to, I, I thought we were going to talk about the next album. And uh, they came to give me the, the, the sad news that uh, I was no longer in a band. So wow. It uh, totally blew, blew my mind, broke my heart, but uh I got over it, and uh, I wished them well, and I've jammed with them in the past since then. And Kenny and I, like two weeks before he passed away, I went out and I saw him, and I introduced my son to him. And very uh, Kenny and I went through a lot together. It was a, such an amazing band, and that, that will never diminish that great feeling of, of how we played together, performed together. Right. All, all five of us, not just Kenny and me, but all five of us. It was a really good band, really good communication within each other. And I can imagine for you, I mean, just putting myself in your shoes where you're in this band and you like the band and you have success with the band uh, and then it's not there anymore. That has to be kind of a tough feeling in your career where if it were me, I would be going like, uh, okay, now what? What's next? So I can imagine that was sort of tough for you at that point in time. It was really rough. And to compound that, I went to see some old friends of mine in a in the band I was in a few years prior to that, just to hang out. And I ate something because I was really upset when I got the news. And it was like right on the heels of that massive letdown for me. And so I wasn't thinking. I was depressed. And I ate some squash that we had been in the fridge a little bit too long. I didn't even look at it. I just sort of put it in the steamer and ate, ate it down. And I got so sick. And I, I went to the concert and, I, and saw my buddies. And, you know, sometimes that takes a little while to, to manifest, like maybe three or four hours later, and you go, oh, dear. And I was in big trouble. I, I didn't know if I was going to make it, actually. So not only what was I going to deal with the loss of street art, but I almost I almost get the bucket at the same week. So it was a tough time for me. I, that was an absolute low of, of my life, you know. That was that was pretty hard. So you're saying literally you got food poisoning to the point of it almost killed you? Is that what I'm understanding? Well, yeah, I was so weak, and my my wife was at work, and I tried to get to the phone to to ask her to, to come home and help me out, and I couldn't make it to the phone. It was across the room. I couldn't make it to the phone. I was lying on the floor, wow, almost passed out when, when Denise came home from work and saw me. And I don't know. Somehow we got to the hospital, and they put me on intravenous. And I don't think they didn't pump my stomach any, but they put me on intravenous, and uh, I pulled through. Obviously, wow, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty touch and go. That's crazy. So then in the in the sense of you never know what's around the corner and never give up, you end up uh, back in Calgary and you form this relationship with Mike Reno and thus uh, Loverboy is born. That's kind of the quick overview of it, but that's essentially what happened, correct? That's exactly right. I was working on a, because I had been let down from Streetheart and, and a few other bands too, I've, I've always said that Obviously, the singer is the most important guy in the band, and the rest of us are there to support him and make him look and sound good. And being a songwriter, that was my job. Maybe someone had to do it. Sure. And somebody had to 
write the song. So I was writing madly for Kenny Shields at the time. And so my job was, was to write for, for Mike. And, uh, but at the time I was so let down. I went, you know what? I'm going to do enough of this, putting my heart and soul behind a singer. I'm going to be the singer. So I said, for better or for worse, I'm going to, I'm just going to be me now. And I'm going to be the Randy Bachman of Calgary (laughs) 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 or whatever. I look up to Randy Bachman. He is one of my all-time models. I think he's amazing. Anyway. uh, You actually tried out for BTO, right? You've been doing your homework, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I I read in a couple places that you actually tried out. It never worked out for whatever reason, but you might have even tried out a couple different times or something. Isn't that right? I tried out once. I, I, uh, we got together in, in my studio in Vancouver. They came to town and they called me up and they said, would you be interested? And I basically taken over Randy's role, singing his tunes Mm -hmm. and uh, playing his parts. And, I thought that was kind of interesting, but I was more interested in, in doing new material sure. in a, in the style of BTO. So I had a couple of tunes that were in that style and what I thought, and I took them to the band and we tried to learn them and it just didn't happen. It right. just didn't click. Right. But I will say Fred Turner, Fred Turner, who's recently retired. He is one of the best, the coolest dudes you'll ever meet. I love Fred Turner, man. He's the coolest guy. So I was, that's why I, why I went there. Cause I wanted to work with Fred and the other two guys as well, but Fred, mainly Fred. We did a thing for Brian McLeod previously when Loverboy got back together again. Uh, we'd, we'd broken up in 92 when grunge came out and basically sure. displaced all us hair metal bands or whatever you want to call us, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I, we were doing a, we were doing a benefit for a departed friend of ours, Brian McLeod, uh-huh. who played on, on hardcore and, uh, co-produced it with me. Right. And uh, one of my best friends. So what Brian Adams said, we need to help this guy out. And so all of us bands got together at, to play at a, a club in Vancouver, here in Vancouver, trying to raise some money for Brian because he was at the Mayo Clinic. And I guess it was costing him a fortune. And we're just trying to trying to get him through it. You know, unfortunately, it didn't happen. But at that show, I was on stage with Fred Turner. I was standing right beside him singing some song. And I couldn't believe it. His voice was about as loud as I'm talking right now. And he would give out these blood-curdling screams yeah. and with no effort. I'm like, how do you do that, you know? That was one of the one of my takeaways from Fred Turner, besides the fact that he was one of the finest gentlemen you'd ever meet. He was just just a great guy. Right on. And, uh, but anyway, I, I so we got we got together in my studio, and we I, I laid a bunch of new tunes on him, and it just didn't happen. It just wasn't, wasn't, wasn't their style or I don't know what it was. But. Right. So I was I was auditioning them at the same time they were auditioning me and I basically I just passed. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast Growing Up Rock and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. So just like the lovely and talented Samantha said, you can always subscribe to our podcast, but you can also help out our podcast by going to the growinguprock.com website and clicking on our Amazon banner. That'll take you straight to Amazon. It'll cost you absolutely the same as if you were just going to Amazon and doing your shopping. And we get a little bit of a kickback to help us pay for our hosting fees, things like that. So in the past few days or the past couple weeks, Sonny, people have picked up records by Soundgarden, Louder Than Love, 
uh, a band called Tall Stories, which is an amazing band. I've had that CD for a long, cool time. Uh, things like Right Between the Eyes, I think that is the Rainbow Record. Uh, Skyscraper, um, some Powerade, some Diet Mountain Dew. <laughs> let's see. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, let, uh, uh, Conair Professional Hairbrush Set. That's always important. Got to lick your best. Uh, hey, here we go. This is the most important thing on this list. Some quilted northern ultra plush toilet paper, my friend. That's, That's right. somebody who doesn't want to go to the grocery store, basically. <laughs> basically. But they did pick up some cool rock and roll. King Cobra 3, Sucker for a Pretty Face, uh, an Aussie single, a little bit David Lee Roth. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, so keep on keeping on. It's helping us out. We appreciate all those things. Thank you so much for everybody that's gone to our Amazon links and helped out. And if you feel like that's just too complicated or you're not sure or you just question whether or not you want to do anything like that, you can always go to the donate link, which is right next to the Amazon thing, and click on the donate PayPal link which Sonny you don't know about this we just put it up there we'll keep it simple for people that can go there they can click on the button and donate whatever they feel like whether that's five bucks ten bucks twenty bucks whatever they want to do whatever they feel this entertainment is worth because at the end of the day we're really not getting any money out of it it's just helping us to pay our hosting fees and things like that and so we always appreciate that it helps keep the quality of the podcast going helps us keep putting out great content each and every week you know what i'm saying sonny you okay with all that my friend yeah that's cool that's cool all right so let's get back into this interview So I read that when Loverboy came together that you guys were basically a band for literally like two years. You just did nothing but write before you ever even played out. That's true. That's absolutely right. Did you end up taking any of the songs that you were maybe writing for the second Street Heart record and use them on that first uh, Loverboy record? No, no, there was nothing came out of that. The irony of that is that some of the band, some of the tunes that I was, some of my songs that I was writing, ended up on the Street Heart album, and I was like, "What? I was going to maybe use those tunes for myself." Yeah, and they ended up on the Street Heart album. So that was that was a little disturbing for me, but uh, <laughs> that's water under the bridge, you know. Yeah. At the time, that's I'm I'm just oversharing right now. My uh, oh, that's <laughs> my, it's fair. That's what this my, is all about. It's therapy. It's rock and roll therapy for you, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's trying to grow up on it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so so you guys wrote for two years and then you, you end up securing the deal with uh with Columbia uh after Warner finally uh passes on you and you guys put out the debut record. Um and your first show live I read was opening for Kiss in seventy nine. Is that correct? November 19th, 1979. Never forget it. Yeah. Wow. What do you recall from that show? There's a couple of things. Jim Clinch was, had been in the band. He was, he was the singing, lead singing bass player with April wine for a long time. And he left the band for whatever reason. And so he was available and we called him up to see if he would be in the band. And he, he came out and joined the band and 
he, he was he was really new in the band. I, I don't know how many days he'd been in the band. And and uh, Bruce Allen, our manager, says, "You guys are your first gig is in a week. You're opening for Kiss. That's going to be your first show." And we, you know, what an amazing thing to happen to. Because normally you would, it would take you years to get that spot. Sure. But Bruce Allen, he he was uh, once again that BTO tie. He was their manager, for and he took them over the top. So he had connections. He he was and still is the king of Vancouver in terms of a manager. And uh, so he, I'm suspecting that the original opener for that show, maybe they got busted at the border or something like that, or sure. they couldn't get their immigration together or. Who knows what it what that was a last minute thing, and then last minute things all happen all the time in this business. It's amazing. So yeah, they they Bruce said, well, I got a band, they're ready to go, and I guess we were ready. I mean, to be, get back to your your earlier statement, it took us two years. You know, after about a year of just writing, we were in Calgary writing, auditioning Mike and me, auditioning guys. We had Doug was uh, was unavailable at the time, but he, although he was working on my solo demos with me. But we were just writing our faces off in Calgary, and then we finally moved to, to Vancouver so that we could be with Bruce Allen. And uh, because uh, uh, our manager, it's kind of convoluted. I'm kind of going about this in a backwards fashion. But our manager at the time when we were just a two-piece with Mike and me was was uh, Lou Blair and in Calgary. And he had the wisdom to say, you know, I, I can take these guys so far, but I really need a big gun. So he knew Bruce Allen from years ago being bouncers together when at the very beginning of their career, back when I was playing the bars in mm-hmm. uh, in the 60s, they were they were both bouncers in this club. So they knew each other from that. But in the meantime, Bruce had, had, had taken BTO and put them on the map and over the top with them. So he went in his wisdom, in Lou's wisdom, he says, you know, I'm going to see if Bruce would be interested in in managing these guys. Lou did a really cool thing. He, we had a demo, an eight, an eight song demo that we had a cassette of, and it included turn me loose with the big scream in it and everything and the full production and, and most of the tunes that made the first album. And he and Bruce went on, on just on a little vacation together. They went to, uh, to Vegas, probably with their wives and everything. And, and Lou said to me, she says, hey, I rented you a Mercedes convertible. It's parked out front. Here's the keys. And there's a cassette in the player. Uh, check it out. And so Bruce took it out for a ride and came back and went, yeah, I see what you did here. This is good. <laughs> I guess he heard, he listened to the album and basically said, I'm in. I love this. This sure. is great. Well, I think there's some real potential here. So we moved to Vancouver right right away. That's great. And so we started working with Bruce and... Uh, but yeah, it took us two years just to get back to your original question. It took us two years of writing it, but the last year was okay. We're ready, and Lou would say, "No, you're not ready. Or you still don't have the songs. I need to hear those hits." And okay, so we're back in the studio, back in the rehearsal hall. We're still auditioning drummers and and uh, bass players all the, at the same time, but we're still writing, and we're pretty solid by this time. We've got a bass player in in Jim Clench and. Doug is, has left the band in Calgary and moved, moved with us to Vancouver. Matt had left Street Hard by this time, yeah. but we were still we were rehearsing. By this time, we were rehearsing in in Matt's basement, the the rental house he had with his girlfriend there. And then we kept you know begging, "Come on, we want to go start playing." And he's, "No, you're not ready." So finally, the opportunity came along, and I guess they figured that we were we were we had the songs, and uh, that so that was our first show. And then after that, we. 
we've been working nonstop ever since that. Really, that was uh, because you, all of a sudden we are here. We are from playing the the big room in Vancouver opening for Kiss to to playing the club. So there was a lot of interest. It wasn't like we had to start off at the clubs at the bottom and and claw our way up because we, remember we were playing all original material too, and right. that was very unheard of for a club band to be doing that. Because most bands are, they're cover bands. They're playing Z- uh, Zeppelin or Aerosmith and ACDC, you know. So our first shows playing the bars in Vancouver. That's what everybody wanted to hear. So we we got pretty good at ducking ice cubes and, and uh, lipstick containers and stuff like that at quarters. <laughs> because people would, they'd be yelling at us, Aerosmith, and they'd fire something at us, you know. Right. And demanding that we that we play what they wanted to hear. And we went, we said, well, sorry, guys, this, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. We're not. We're not. Do, we're not a cover band. We're doing our own thing here. And uh, we were pelted regularly to up to a point, and then people started to get it. Right. Then they got on. Got on board. They got the chemistry of the band, and they they could now they knew the tunes because they'd heard them enough times. So they they started to they got into the band. But it was interesting beginning, you know. Yeah, and I mean, you guys were fortunate enough in that two years to literally write the entire debut record, but also then write quite a bit of material that ended up on Get Lucky, right? I don't think that's correct, because I remember writing, working for the weekend, writing it on the road. The first record had already been out, and uh, Lucky ones, I remember working on it in the dressing room in one of the big shows. Uh, opening for Kansas or somebody. Okay. And all those, and Jump came along while we were in the studio actually recording Get Lucky. Brian Adams offered us the song and said, Here's it. I got the song started. You guys want to finish it up? And uh, so we actually, we, we wrote, I would think, say that we wrote most, or at least finished writing most of the, the uh, second album on the road okay. in the dressing room and in the hotel rooms on the road. That's all we wanted to do was was write songs, and it wasn't like okay, it wasn't like a momentum thing. It was just it's that just be it was a natural thing. It's we were in such a productive mode at the time. It was we didn't have any problem writing together and coming up with stuff. There was a lot of energy in the band, a lot of a lot of determination and uh, concentration uh, and focus. We were all very very focused on on writing songs together and, and making that happen. That, and that went on for the first three years. It was very, very productive and very focused. And then, then after the third year, it kind of got a little bit distracted with other things, you know. But those first three years were extremely, they were amazing years. The third album was, was a, as I was saying, it was a little bit, uh, it wasn't as fast and furious as those first two albums, uh-huh. the first three years, you know. Because it, it took us, on the third year, we started uh, preparing the, the third album. So, But those those first three years, it was like, it was amazing that the, the the work ethic. That's 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 a real corny way of putting it. It wasn't work at all. It was the right. joy of it. You know. Sure. I mean, you guys went on a crazy, ridiculous run from eighty to eighty-five. You had these these records that were doing fantastic, uh, and you said for the first three records, the relationships in the band were strong. The focus uh, was strong, but also. You know, eighty through eighty-five. That's a that's definitely a time of excess. So, was there a lot of excess going on at the time? Extracurricular activities, things such as that. I can't believe I'm still alive, and <laughs> any of us are still alive. I'm not going to go into the sort of details, but 
Oh yeah. Yeah. So it was you, all there. you guys were no different than any other rock band at that point in time. It's just, you didn't hear a whole lot about, you know, there was never, I don't recall a whole lot of dirty laundry going on with Loverboy. You know, there was all these other things happening with some of these rock bands at the time, but Loverboy for the most part seemed like it was always kind of business as usual, you know, at least from my, my viewpoint as a fan. Well, I guess it worked then. <laughs> but but it was uh, inside the uh, the realm it was no different than anything else that you were reading about it sounds like well i don't i don't think we were a lot of that was hype i'm sure you know for bands like van halen and, and that body crew and that sure. but they they kind of they generated that hype and they were that was part of their thing that was their bad boy images right and uh that wasn't our thing we weren't trying to project that image that wasn't our that wasn't our priority our priority was just trying to make good music and we weren't really into the image thing right. until until mtv came along and <laughs> they built our image for us it was we they, they asked us to do all these videos right from the get-go they columbia i don't know whether mtv came to columbia or columbia went to mtv but they the guys came to us as soon as MTV broke, they said, okay, we got to get our boys on that, on the channel. And, and, uh, they asked us to come to New York and, uh, and, and start making the video for turn me loose. And so we were, I knew I was totally aware of, of MTV. I, I stumbled across it in Wichita, Kansas. I think we were on, on the road with, with Kansas or ZC top or something like that. And hopefully for them. And, uh, because I think it was even before that, but we were barely in, working in the U.S. Maybe it was with April Wine. I think we did a few shows down there, and and uh, but anyway, I I stumbled across MTV in in my hotel room, and I I must have probably watched the thing all day <laughs> that first day. I couldn't believe how great it was. I mean, this is the this is the deal right here. How do we get on this? And uh, I guess maybe a month later, we were on it. Uh, it was it happened really fast, but. But we were we were on holiday. All of us were on holiday, and uh, we we had a week uh, in. Uh, we went to Mexico for a week, three of us with our babes and our wives, and um, <laughs> we were sorry to say, babes, uh, that's just sort of slipped out, girl. Sorry. We were in uh, in Mexico, and we got a got a call from our managers and saying uh, they want you to do a video. So Columbia wants to do a video. So we, we jumped on a plane and left our wives in Mexico and, and hit it to New York. We went directly, flew directly to New York and and uh, shot that video for Turn Me Loose. Yeah, wow. What a great opportunity that was. I, sure. You know, that was like mind-blowing to be able to do that. That was great. Yeah, it helped a lot of bands at the time. You were a huge part of the writing team. I mean, you literally had your hand in on just about every song for those first three records and even the fourth one. But I'm, I am curious about one thing, which is I noticed in doing my research that Loving Every Minute of It, which was the lead track off of that album, was written by Mutt Lang. How did that come about? We were fortunate enough to work with Mike Shipley, uh, another yep. dearly departed friend of ours. Um, he was he was Mutt Lang's go-to guy for mixing and and, and recording. He was the engineer on all the Def Leppard stuff and and the Cars and and probably ACDC back and block. He was he was second in command to uh, to Mutt. And we really wanted to work with Mutt, but for some reason Mutt didn't have the time or he didn't care enough that he didn't want to put in the time 
to record an album because when my, it's like me, when you get in, into producing an album and writing an album, you put your heart and soul into it for months and months and months at a time. And I guess he maybe had prior commitments, but so anyway, we were happy to be working with Mike who at least we figured we could get the, the sound that, that amazing sound, that mix that we love so much with all those bands and foreigner Ford and all that stuff. It was, we loved that the sound of, of much production. So we figured, well, this is a really good thing to have. So we went to the studio, which is a, which is a now defunct studio, apparently just outside of Montreal with Mike Shipley as producer. And he was trying to get his credit in producing. He wanted to step up from engineering to producing and we were willing to give it a go. And in Mike's wisdom, he listened to the tunes we had. We recorded everything we had. We listened, he listened to it back and went, you know what? I don't think you got it yet. All these tunes are great. They sound good. They feel good, blah, blah, blah. But you don't have the hit. I went, oh, really? <laughs> well, what are we going to do about that? Here we are in the studio at a zillion dollars a day, you know? He says, well, let me call my buddy Mutt and see if he can help us out. And I went, oh, okay. That would, be, that would be fine. So he did it. And Mutt agreed and wrote us, I guess, wrote us a tune specifically for us in a couple of days. I swear, in a couple of days, he played all the parts, wrote the tune. Maybe, maybe he already had a germ of it, you know? had a start on it. But anyway, he two day, two or three days later, he delivered, he phoned us up, put me on the phone and said, uh, play me the song over the, the phone. I immediately got, I went, this is an amazing song, but I can't really hear what's going on. Can you call us back and I'll get the engineering staff to hook up a recording system through the phone line so that we can get at least a bit of a bit more clarity and we can hear exactly what's more exactly what's going on. So we did that. So we got, kind of went from, from, uh, you know, a mosquito, sound to maybe a hummingbird sound it was getting better but it still wasn't great but right. at least we could hear what was going on right yeah kind of we could hear what the guitars were doing and the, we could understand the lyrics now but i still couldn't hear the bottom end so i said you know this is really great i got a really good picture of it, but is there any way that you could courier us an actual tape of it because we love the song. We definitely would want this song. We want to get a, a better view of it. I, I want to be able to hear what the, the bass is playing and what the kick drum's playing, the bass drum's playing. And uh, so he did that as well. So I guess a couple of days later, it arrived, the courier arrived it from all the way from probably London to uh, to Montreal. And we put it on and there it was. Okay, that's what the kick drum's playing. That's what the bass is playing. Okay, got it. So we put the tape on and Matt with the band we played to the track, to Mutt's track, sure. and that's the drum track right there. That's what we played to. We just played to the tune, learned the tune, played along with it, and there you go. That's there's the track right there. That was our what they call a click track, I suppose. It was you know, it was, yeah. we didn't have that. Well, what we had was the tape that Mutt sent over, so we played along to it and uh, played guitar and, and sang and everything, and then you know worked on it from there and polished it up. And that's, that's what you hear. That's awesome. Wow, man, you guys in 2014, you released Unfinished Business, but now it's 2018. You guys have been touring all along doing these fly dates, and uh, you even have dates listed uh, up through September of this year where you're doing fly dates, but you've been working on the solo record, and that's what I want to talk to you about now because you just released this new single, Be With You, on the 27th of March that you can find you know, at Spotify and Apple Music and places like that. I went and listened to the song. And it's interesting because before I even read like any of the press release or anything, I just want to listen.
listen to the song because I don't like to be influenced by words on paper. I like to hear for myself. So I went. I, I, I totally hear you. That's exactly what I am too. It's like yeah. a movie. I don't want to read read any reviews or anything. No. I want to I want to see it and make up my own mind. So yeah, yeah. It's cool. So I went and I listened to the song and then. I formed my own opinion. I, I heard the song and then I went and read the press release and I'm like, holy shit, they're almost dead on because the first thing I thought when I heard the song was, okay, wow, this is different for sure, but it has a little bit of this um, this sort of this traveling Wilburys feel and sure enough in the press release, that's one of the bands they cite is kind of having that feel and then the second thing that I thought to myself is, hey, we're right around the corner from summer and this sounds to me like kind of a summertime song you know what i mean wow yeah now that you mention it i never it never even dawned on me that this was a that 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 was the case but you're right now that now that you mentioned it it is a summer song wow that's that's pretty uh pretty uh fortunate i guess that we picked that tune to put out i don't know yeah, That's I cool. mean, I can I can a hundred percent hear this on on my vacation mix. You know, I mean, it just has yeah. kind of that that Mexicano feel. That uh, I don't know what you call it, but I mean, it's it, that's what it feels like to me. That's what it sounds like uh, to my ears. Is that kind of feel? It's it kind of makes me uh, makes me happy, like I'm on vacation. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Mar- Margarita in hand under the umbrella on the sure, beach, right there. Right. Right, why not? You see you, yeah. you you can picture that with this song, right? Oh yeah. <laughs>
So tell me a little bit about uh, the recording of this album and and uh, what what's the name of the actual album that's coming out? You know, I, I don't really have a name because I'm going to put the album out eventually, but I don't know when. It could be in a month. It could be in a, in a year. Sure. I don't know when it's going to come out. I got I have a bunch of singles I'm just going to put out. I'm going to try and do a video for every one of them. Uh-huh. And, uh, but uh, as for the recording of it, there's five songs on the record. Not, not Be With You wasn't one of them, but... Five, there's five tunes that Spider and Matt and I recorded in my good friend, uh, Mike Pisterzi. He used to own this studio in Dallas. And he, he and I go back quite a ways. We, we did a, a benefit to, uh, for Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, way back in, in, in Orlando, and uh, along with a bunch of other bands. And he was the, he was the producer, engineer, like recording guy, the setup guy for that. And he, Mike and I just fell in because he, he is a really... He's the most high tech guy I've ever met. He's an amazing guy, and uh, we just—that's what we talk about, basically. We're, and he offered his studio. He says, "If you ever want to record anything, I got this studio here. I got there's actually three studios, and you can take your pick. And if you ever wanted to do that, and I went, wow, that's very cool. And I thought about it. I, t- I took that away with me, and I don't know, probably six months later, I went, you know what? I'm going to take him up on that offer. I'm going to see if this is for real." So I phoned him up and I said, are you serious? He said, absolutely, I'm serious. So we were in Dallas or in the area. So we just stayed. The three of us stayed and one of the, one of the crew guys to help us out. And we, we went into, uh, into the studio for 10 days and we recorded 10 songs. And uh, five of them, we, we used one of the tracks for another song that we released. It just turned out to be the right tempo and the right feel. Mike and I rewrote the tune over top of that drum track, Rock and Roll Revival. Okay. So that that was, so we used that track on Rock and Roll Revival. Okay. That song, and uh, and then but there's five other other tracks that stood up, and I went that stood the test, and because it was a few years back that we did this, and some of the tracks were recorded a long time ago, but the lyrics just weren't kicking in for me. Mm-hmm. They just they just didn't get that stamp of approval, you know. Right. So I kept working on them and working on them, and I finally, you know, talking to people, he says, "What do you think about this idea?" And this concept and, and my manager says, well, why don't you make it about this? I went, Oh, that's kind of an interesting take. Yeah. Let me see what I got. I can do about that. And it turned out great. Uh, I think, I mean, if I can be so, so humble, I'm happy with it. Put it that way. I I think it's cool. Hey, that's all that matters. uh, Yeah. Well, I have to think it's cool. I'm not going to put something out that everybody thinks it's great. And I think it sucks. You know, that would be pretty dumb. But anyway, uh, that's that was kind of the the backbone of the album, and so there's Matt's playing on that, uh, and a, a couple other drummers. A drummer that I that I played with in in Calgary yeah. for a while. We we were working on putting a band together, and I asked him if he would play on this track. And I rented this uh, recording console, this little portable recording console from the local record store, right. music store, and took it into his basement, set it up, set up the, all the mics, recorded the drums, played guitar along with it, and built it up from there. Right, which which I do a lot. I'll do that a lot. I'll just I'll get together with a drummer and I'll just play guitar and we'll put together a backbone of a tune and then I'll finish it later. You know, maybe. Sure. It's so many cool thing about writing songs is there's just no set way of writing a song. Right. It can just fall out into your lap like you're so emotional from that song I sang on uh, Get Lucky. Right. Where they had wrote itself in five minutes with no thought, and then. This could be the night took four years to finish. You just never know. You just I keep going until it's done, you know, yeah. whatever it takes. Rewrites, rewrites, rewrites. And 
sometimes I'll take a phrase and it'll take me three weeks to get the white, the right four, four word phrase that makes sense. Right on. Sits in the track, you know, that's me, you know? Yeah. Do you plan on doing any like solo touring in support of this record, either in Canada or the States at all? I don't really have any plans to do that. I'm not saying that I won't. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm happy playing Loverboard with Loverboard with the guys in the band. This was a, the album, the, the new solo album is just a bunch of songs that I had kicking around and I finally got to go on. You know what? I'm going to finish these tunes. Right. I'm going to finish them. I'm going to put them out. Otherwise, what's the point of just having them sitting around half finished? Yeah, Kind of, of like that, like the unfinished business idea, you know, but uh, a lot of the tunes are a lot newer. Like the unfinished business were some of the tracks were from 74, you know? Right. So these are a lot newer than that. Some of them are brand new, but uh, Be With You was, pretty new you know lyrically it's it was wasn't that long ago that it was born lyrically it was like just a few months back i finished it you know yeah does lover boy plan on making any uh new records anytime soon what's well, a that's a good question i never say never you know yeah. i mean i don't know maybe yeah there's no plans though currently there's no plans there's no yeah. there's no everybody sitting down and says okay we got to make a record we sure. get the pressure's on because <laughs> it absolutely is not on. <laughs> That's the one good thing about today's uh, music industry. I don't think the pressure is on at all for bands like yourself, maybe for a brand new band or something, but bands that kind of have had their success uh, uh, and are still going strong doing these fly dates and things like that. I don't think the pressure is on at all for you guys to do new music. I think if you want to do it, you do you know, it. If you don't, you don't. Yeah, I think the majority of people, they don't, they're not really that interested in. They want the nostalgia thing. They want to. They want to go back and and relive that time when the songs first came out. And uh, I personally don't want to be just that. Right. So this is why I keep I keep writing sure. and recording and releasing new new videos and new songs. I'm, that's just how I am, you know. But some of the other guys are they might be totally content with that, you know. At this time in their life, they're. I mean, it's a it's not an easy job. I'm not. I would never in the slightest complaint about what we have going on in the band. It's not, but I will say that it's not all glamorous and it's not all easy. You know, nah. it's when we've hit the stage and all the other stuff is behind us, all the missed flights and the overnight stays and getting up at the crack of dawn to get, to get to the, the show because the flight was canceled from the day before. Once, once all that's behind us, and we're we're on the stage, and we nobody thinks about that stuff. And nobody in the band, and nobody in the audience. This is this we're playing for the moment, and we're it's like a celebration of of this of the songs. Really, I can't say anything. Yeah. So I'm not celebrating anything other than I get to play these tunes again with this band for these people. I mean, it's an amazing opportunity for us, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about is being up there on stage and, and playing the music. And you've got such a rich history and such an amazing catalog. I mean, there were so many songs that meant a lot to me in my teenage years, you know, growing up. I happen to be like you in the way that I always appreciate new music. And I'm not the guy that comes to see Loverboy necessarily to hear working for the weekend and things like that. I like, I like the deep tracks. Like I like strike zone 
You know, I I love that kind of thing. I I I was never the ballad individual. I mean, Loverboy was a unique band in that period of time of my life because I was into guitar-driven rock and Loverboy had enough guitar-driven rock to keep me interested. I was never the ballad guy. I was always the rock guy. Uh, and those records were just rocking enough and just well-written songs to really keep me invested in the band. And so <laughs> I always love to hear the deep tracks and new music, you know, and so that's, that's kind of what I'm all about. I, th- I think you're in the minority, though. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I am. <laughs> I, I, I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, it's, if given it, given the chance, I would play every song that we've ever recorded. You know, I would play, I'd get up on stage and play for 10 hours, but you know, that's my job. I always say that my, I got the easiest job. Doug and I have the easiest job. We just wiggle our fingers and sing a little bit. It's, it's what Mike Reno has to do. It's unbelievable what his gig is. And Matt Burnett, Matt is a friggin' powerhouse. He doesn't let up for 90 minutes. It's like, Whoa, where does that energy come from? So, you know, 90 minutes is good. It's it's a really I feel I think we all feel really fulfilled because there's so many different even though it's usually the same songs they're so different from mm-hmm. night after night for me anyway and I don't know how many people pick up on it because I mean let's be honest most people come to hear Mike and rightly so because he's in a, one of the top three two or three singers in rock in my opinion he's an incredible voice that's why i got together with him in the first place because his voice i just i went whoa this is amazing this guy can got such tone it's funny i I watch him warm up i listen to him warm up and and i try to analyze how he gets the tone how he gets that that tone when he how it resonates through his head and through his whole friggin' body when he sings you know it's just he's really got it down he really understands how to get that when he sings sings the ballads, or when he sings anything, really, from the top of his his screams and and it's really powerful in the pop genre, and and then when he sings the ballads and he gets that tone, that body head tone, he, I I don't know, call it what you want, but I'm I'm still Mike's biggest fan. He's a, an amazing singer, and Matt too. He's what a great drummer, you know. Yeah. He, these guys, what well, we all do, we put everything. We somebody said, what I like about you guys is. It's like every gig is you're going to be your last gig. It's you put your heart and soul, you put everything you have into every song every night, and that's true. That's we do that, and that's that's who we are, you know. Right. And that's who we are together too. I mean, if we were playing with somebody else, somebody else in the band, it's not, probably not going to generate that kind of chemistry. But uh, fortunately, Spider, because Spider and Matt and I played together in, in Street Heart, as sad as it was at the time when Scott uh, was in that fatal boating accident 20 years ago, we had, we're lucky for us. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, how can you say it was lucky, but it was fortunate that we had already worked with spider. So we knew that spider could carry that lover boy torch, you know? Right. And, uh, and spider is a, what a crazy, great musician and Doug too. I mean, everybody, well, I won't talk for myself, but the other four guys are like, the, the best musicians, you know, you, you, you got to hear Doug play jazz and classical and he's become a really good sax player too. Well, he's been, he plays sax in one song. And anyway, that's, 
You know, uh, that's my that's me blowing my horn about my my partners in Loverboy. The bottom line is, you know, you guys are definitely in the minority in terms of you've kind of kept the family together for all these years. I mean, most of the time, you know, bands out there on the road from your era have one original guy and everybody else are replacement players, but you guys pretty much are the original band, you know, minus Scott, which obviously things happen and that was a horrible thing but it is what it is and so you know the band as a whole is still pretty much intact so that's amazing after all these years yeah it is it is uh, amazing and just to give you a little bit of insight as to why that may be happening my wife denise and i have been together for 46 years awesome congratulations man so maybe it has something to do with my my <laughs> peacekeeping skills i don't know but that's just the type of person I am. I'm a faithful dog to the end. Maybe, maybe as a guitar player and as a singer, neither one of you have a complete ego problem. So if the guitar player doesn't have a complete crazy ego and the singer doesn't have a complete crazy ego, it makes for a nice living environment. Well, that, that's true. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, somebody has to be, uh, stay sane through it all. And, and stay, stay objective and, and be cool and be able to turn the other cheek and to be able to walk away and, and say, you know, this isn't that big a deal. This isn't, this isn't career and this is not a career ending decision. So I'm just going to walk away and tomorrow will be another day. That's It'll it. Be just great. That's yeah. it. Hey, listen, uh, Paul, I've taken up a ton of your time and you've been super gracious. Before I let you get out of here, are you interested in doing kind of a quick uh, lightning round of questions with me? I can try it. All right. Let's let's go. Let's have a little bit of fun. Song you wish you wrote. Oh, wow. What would the song, what's that Beatles song? Um, She's Leading Home, maybe. Okay. One of those, something like one of those, one of those, super dark beetle ballads, you know. Right. I don't know if that's the one. What's that one called? That's that melody. Um I'm gonna, you know, I I'm gonna leave that for the fans to figure out. Band other than Loverboy you wish you were in and would you play guitar or would you do something else in the band? Holy mackerel, that's a good question. Rhythm players in Jimi Hendrix experience. Awesome. Great, great answer. Your favorite tour you were a part of, opening or headlining, and if you were headlining, who was your favorite opening act you had out with you? My favorite opening act, that's that's a no-brainer, was Joan Jett. Okay. Now we open for her. I mean, Joan Jett is, to me, she's she's the shit, man. She's so great. I love her attitude. Yeah. She's just, her, her, she, is the, she is the queen of rock and roll attitude. She says it all. She is rock and roll, that oh, girl. Awesome. So that's, and uh, we, she opened for us, I think in 80, sometime in the 80s, I don't know. Yeah. But we did a, we did a, a really cool tour. It was a bit weird because she was so rock and roll and we were so not rock and roll, but I didn't care. The, my <laughs> boat went to Joan Jett because I, I just love her to death. You know, she's, she's great. Right. I think one of our one of my favorite gigs two come to mind. One was in San Antonio, because something about San Antonio and Canadian bands. I don't know what it is, but Triumph and all these other bands would and Rush would come through San Antonio and the crowd would go crazy. Interesting. And I just remember coming out one night after we played there in the limo and being 
literally swarmed by this hive of fans. It was like a beehive of activity. It was just people literally crawling on the car. Awesome. Who could forget something like that? Uh, no doubt. And another time, I mean, this is all, it sounds like big ego stuff, but it's just stuff that sticks with it because it's so unusual, you know? Sure. It's so out of the norm. And one other time we're, we're playing in Japan and we're running from the fans. Like the Beatles, man. I, it's like, what is this? How can this be? You know, in 1982, we're in, in Japan for 10 days. And it was, it was pandemonium. That's Wait cool. for you with gifts at the bottom of the elevator. At least they had, they had the great restraint not to come and knock on our hotel room doors. But they would be waiting for us at the train stations when we got off. They knew exactly where we were going to be at any time with a gift or a request or something. You know, So that was cool. But the one that really sticks out was we were playing in uh, Munich, in, I believe in 83, and we were headlining in a velodrome, which, which I believe that's what they call it. It was an indoor bicycle racetrack, uh-huh. wooden, all slanted all the way around. It was so cool. And once again, it was the fans reacting, and this has never happened. We've had chanting before. We had a couple of chanting nights this summer in uh in Quebec, we did two back-to-back nights, and they were doing a hockey chant between the, the end of the set and before the encore. Right. And that's a, that's always mind-blowing to hear that. Everybody everybody chanting something. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whatever the song is they're singing. Right. But the one in Munich was, love for boy, love for boy, love for boy. It was everybody, and it was mostly guys, because why? I don't know. But And in this guttural... German, the coolest chant going. Oh, boy, I was. You just get chills thinking about that kind of effect that you have on the audience, and the audience are so cranked and so into being there with you and sharing the songs, and you know, letting us know that they're with us. They get it. They understand what we're doing. Right on. And so those are the three or four craziest experiences I can remember. Awesome. Now, are you a car person? Not so much anymore. I, I've had the same car forever. Yeah. Uh, but I, I I had a 65 debt that I restored many years ago. I, I was in a Porsche, yeah. and uh, I follow it. But, you know, my car is such a great car. I test drive a lot of cars, and I go, why, why would I want to get an inferior car? My car, it's a 3 Series BMW that I've had forever, and it's just an incredible car. But yeah, I'm I'm a car guy. It sounds like it sounds like uh, your favorite car is actually your Harley, though. <laughs> yeah, that was my first Harley. I I had it for many years. I've had many many Harleys. To be honest, I'd rather be out on my bicycle now. And uh, whenever I get the chance, I'm out on my bike, climbing the hills in North Vancouver where I live on my 21 speed. Not sunny that much, but when it is, I'm out on my bike. If I don't have a real important project that I'm doing. Yeah. Are you still doing digital photography? Well. Yeah, I've taken it to the next level in that I'm I'm doing videos with iMovie now, but it starts with photography. It all, it all it's all all done with a camera. I do most of it on my iPhone, or I have a little portable. You got to keep everything portable because I do so much of my work on the road. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see doing like some sort of a show where you're gonna uh, share your projects with anybody? You know, photography projects or or um, movie projects with anybody. You know, that's exactly what I'm doing is that my videos, the last four videos that I've done are all on YouTube. So you don't get much more sharing than that. It's there they are. If anybody wants to watch it or listen to the song, great. YouTube is amazing, you know? Okay. 
Awesome. And so do you sing in the car or the shower? Because you're singing on your solo records. So do you sing in the car or the shower? I don't sing in the shower because people live in my house with me <laughs> and they don't want to experience that. But I'll, I worked out a couple of tunes actually in my car. One of the, one of the ballads that I sing, I was really trying to get in the mood for it, trying to find the right key uh-huh. that was relaxed and it was my natural voice. So I sang the tune and, and recorded it on my phone, not knowing, having any idea what the key was that I'd already recorded the track in, but I had the feeling that maybe, maybe it wasn't the right key, but I just wanted to make sure. And it turned out that I was really, really close. I was like a, a semitone out. So I came back in and I, I re-recorded all the tracks, uh, changed the key, a, a semitone and then sang it. <laughs> so that that's what I do. And I'll sing along to Tom Petty and people like that, that I, that I kind of have a, an, a affiliation with in, in terms of style and tone yeah and uh, I, I look to tom petty as a as a real uh, inspiration vocally for me awesome all right last question and then i'm gonna let you get back to your lovely vancouver and that is what two records do you take with you to the desert island oh that's easy i would take the white album the beatles white album yeah and i would take electric ladyland those are my two albums I would take. Okay, perfect. Because uh, white records, you get a double record, so that's a good deal. <laughs> that's right. And, and and if there was a third, it would be that double Zeppelin album that they released. That okay. was a killer album, too. Physical Graffiti, I think. Thank you. Thank yep. you. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Paul Dean, you have been Thanks. so much of a gentleman. I appreciate your time. You have been awesome. Well, no problem. It's a, a great honor to talk to you. And, uh, and and all the people listening I want to say hey and come see us sometime. Absolutely. We will tie together not only your website, but Loverboy's website and social media to our show notes so that everybody can reach out to you guys and find all the latest information and tour dates, et cetera, et cetera. And when you put out your solo record, they can, of course, go out and get the single now. Uh, and listen to that. Like I said, it's a great summertime song, in my opinion. So go out there and um, check it out. Well, I appreciate it, Stephen. Thank you so much. Have a great day, my friend. All right. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. All right. So that's the Paul Dean from Loverboy interview. Paul had a lot to say. Sonny, what do you think about that interview? How did we do? I thought it was a good interview. You know, guy's pretty humble. Now he's 72 years old, so you don't always get the easiest answer or the quickest answer. Yep. And at times don't get to the answer, but he's also 72 years old, right? So guy's still out there rocking. You got to love that. And then that whole BTO thing, man, think about that. If that works out, like maybe Loverboy completely is gone. Who knows if it even exists? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, he talked about that. It was during one of their hiatus breaks, and uh, he's obviously a big BTO fan. So pretty cool. You know, I I thought that was it was a little bit of a fanboy moment for him. You know what I mean? Like you can obviously tell that he was he was really, you know, a big fan of BTO. And and so that would have been cool. I mean, that's like, you know, if I had my own band and we were really successful, but all of a sudden Eddie Van Halen asked me to join Van Halen, you know, that would be a bit of a fanboy moment for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, I thought it was interesting. He brought up the Mutt Lang thing. So most people probably don't know that love and every minute of it was written by Mutt Lang. But if you go back and really listen to that song again, it is very Def Leppard. What was interesting to me 
is, you know, he could reiterate the date that they opened for Kiss, but then Sword in the Stone didn't come up. Yeah, uh, you know, and and it, I didn't have it on my notes, and I wanted to bring up Sword of the Stone. And I wanted to bring up a lot more because with that with that solo record he recorded, the hardcore record, not only did he have Sword in the Stone, which was obviously written by Paul Stanley and a Kiss song, but obviously it was um, he also had John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, uh, Brian Adams. So there were a lot of big stars that contributed to this record and when you when you think about it this record came out in 89 so a lot of those people Bon Jovi Brian Adams they were at their peak I mean they were really doing well at that point in time so that's pretty cool stuff and you know you bring up Sword in a Stone and that sounds like a good place for It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So it's time for our historic moment. I mean, why not? We talked about it, Sword in the Stone, written by Paul Stanley. Sonny, help me out. Was this a Kiss song at any point? No. So uh, I think rumor has it that the producers, like Nevison, didn't like it. So they didn't put it on Crazy Nights. And then Paul did the whole X and Sex and Rock Hard uh, when they released Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits. So it was just kind of hanging out there. And Paul's been known to write songs for other people. Like he wanted to do that for a point in time. And if you think about it, if you listen to a lot of the songs, especially in the mid-80s, late-80s that Paul was writing – Really, a lot of other artists could have probably done those songs in a pop nature. So uh, this song was out there. He had handed it to Bonfire for the Shocker soundtrack. But I guess Paul Dean must have had a relationship with him, too. Yeah. Huh. Let's go ahead and play this song. This is the Paul Dean version of a hardcore. This is Sword in the Stone.
Yeah, see, Paul does it justice there. I mean, you know, it's 1989. I thought Bonfires probably had a little more punch. The video is very 80s, so if you see it on YouTube, it's out there. Well, I think we need to bring this thing to a close, man. It's going to be an epic episode, man. There's lots and lots of cool stuff in this episode packed in. Yeah, that was a great interview. And, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to get somebody that's a little bit more off the beaten path for especially we're usually on the harder edge of some of this music and it's kind of cool to get somebody that's been on the charts actually (laughs) more than once. (laughs) All right. That's it. We appreciate everybody's support. Thanks for listening. Help us out with the rock and pod to expo. We appreciate all your support with that. Um, and do the whole review thing and leave us those five stars and yeah, that's it. That's it for us for this week. Sonny, you got anything you want to add, my friend? Nope. Thanks for the support. See you later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.